Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is April 16th, 2019, and my guest is academic and author Bjorn Lomborg. His books include The Skeptical Environmentalist and Cool It. He's the president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center. Our topic for today are the costs and benefits of attacking climate change. Bjorn, welcome to Econ Talk. Russ, it's great to be here. Let's start with your assessment of the risks from global warming. Uh, how serious a problem do you think it is? So uh, I think I think the first thing to really realize is that I'm not talking about this as me. I'm simply trying to take some of the best people who've been working on this, typically with the UN Climate Panel. So when you're asking me what what is my assessment, I'm simply answering what is it that the UN Climate Panel is telling us? Because I'm just working in economics. I'm not the science guy who's been looking at this, but there's lots of uh, economists who've been looking at this. What they find is global warming is a problem. It's not the end of the world. By 2070s, the net impact of global warming will be the equivalent of somewhere between 0.2 and 2% of GDP. So it's the equivalent of probably one recession over the next 50 years. By the end of the century, unmitigated global warming might cost somewhere between 2 and 4% of global GDP. Remember, by then, we'll probably be somewhere between uh, 5 and 10 times richer. So after a thousand percent increase, we'll still have to pay two to four percent. That's certainly a problem. Certainly not the end of the world. A lot of people, though, worry about a worst case scenario. There's uh, uh, increasing concern about extinctions among young people. There's a number of movements, as I'm sure you know, in the in the United Kingdom, uh, trying to mobilize nonviolent uh, protests that recently were some in Parliament. Um, did those worry you at all? Those issues, the possibility of a of a of a more drastic impact. Well, I mean, I think there's two things that we should look at when we when we think about you know really bad outcomes. So the uh, the 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 very far out tail uh, probabilities. One is to remember that any realistic policy that we're going to embark on on the next fifty years will have a trivial impact on climate change and hence also a trivial impact on the risks of these uh, uh, tail events. So in reality, a lot of people seem to be saying, I really, really, really worry about this far out uh, uh, thing that could happen like extinction of some sorts. And therefore, I'm going to pursue very costly but incredibly ineffective policies. That just simply seems contradictory to me. If you actually worry about the really far out tail events, you should be focusing on policies that could actually help you with those events. The only way to have quick and swift impact on climate change is going to be through geoengineering. Now, it's important to say I'm not advocating geoengineering, but I am advocating that we should look into it. Geoengineering is essentially putting sunshades on the planet, if you will. It's 
artificially manipulating the temperature of the planet so that it cools down. We know you can, we can do that because volcanoes do it. Uh, back in 1991, uh, Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines emitted so much sulfur dioxide from one volcano that it reduced temperatures about one degree Fahrenheit for about three years. So you can, and this, these were global temperatures, so you can definitely do this kind of thing. That is your only real way of avoiding dramatic bad outcomes. The other part of the conversation and the other thing you need to remember is if you really worry about bad outcomes, surely you don't just worry about bad outcomes from global warming. You worry about bad outcomes from a wide range of other issues. And I would still argue if you worry about bad outcomes from global warming, you should worry about a lot of other bad outcomes like terrorism, like bioterrorism, uh, certainly the issue of, uh, of, of, of a, an asteroid uh, killing off large parts of the planet, which we know can happen, uh, and many, many other things. And uh, uh, Richard Nordhaus, which we'll probably talk about later, uh, 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 sorry, Bill Nordhaus, uh, who's a professor at Yale University and got the Nobel Prize in Climate Economics, the only economist to get that, uh, he's actually written on this. And, and one of his points was, we actually do have a reasonably good estimate of how much it's worth for most people to secure the planet. Uh, because back in the early 2000s, NASA was looking at, should we protect the planet from asteroids? Should we look for near-Earth objects that might hit the planet? These are basically extinction events, and these are real extinction events. We know that they've happened uh, before probably have about a risk of uh, one in 100 million uh, years. So not a high risk by any means, but certainly a terrible uh, outcome. They could track either 90% or 99% of these Earth objects. And the extra cost of tracking the 9% was not very high, yet Congress decided not to spend that. It was a couple billion dollars. Safe enough. So that very clear. That, that, well, it very clearly tells you that we actually put a price on human survival. And when Nordhaus does the calculation, it shows that we care somewhat, but not all that much about the planet. So in that sense, if you worry about extinction uh, events, which I think is very, very unlikely in, in, uh, in climate, you should certainly also worry about it in the many other areas where it's much more likely and where we also don't seem to be spending the resources. The last bit that I'm sure we'll talk about later is the fact that human beings are incredibly good at adapting to many of these issues, which is probably one of the reasons why you really don't need to worry all that much about the far out, uh, uh, the far tail uh, probabilities. So I'm a little bit skeptical of that, actually quite a bit skeptical. I don't think we want to use the unwillingness of our bizarre and imperfect, by definition, political system to decide how we, whatever that means, feel about, say, extinction of the Earth. Um, why would you want to use that as a basis for for how much we should actually care about or uh, how much we actually care about the survival of the planet? I, I, I guess I think I'd go to 99. I'm with you on that, I think. I think we're on the same page there. I'd want the 99% of, of the uh, objects to looked at. And um, I guess the question is, is what, in the worst case scenario of, of global warming, is there a policy that would be effective? As you point out, doing something just to do something that just impoverishes us 
uh, without reducing the risk would be um, a mistake. But are there other things we can do maybe in the geoengineering field that we ought to be funding very seriously? So, Raj, you're absolutely right. Just because you don't worry in one case uh, doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't be worried in general. I was simply pointing out that we make these decisions a lot of different places and pointing out that we should be different only in climate, but not in all the other areas, seems to me to be inconsistent. And it certainly is not consistent with human behavior. And I think a large part of that is because we've actually, over the last you know, five, 10,000 years, succeeded pretty well simply because we said, mm, we'll handle stuff when it happens. Uh, that does not seem like an intellectually very satisfying uh, decision, but it turns out that it very often works. If, again, you actually want to protect yourself against runaway global warming of some sorts, the only way is to focus on geoengineering. And just to give you uh, one example, and again, I think it's important to say we should not be doing this now, partly because global warming is just not nearly enough of a problem, and also because we need to investigate a lot more what could be the bad impacts of doing geoengineering. But we know that white clouds uh, reflect more sunlight and hence cool the planet slightly. One way of making uh, uh, white clouds is by having a little more sea salt in over the oceans stirred up. Remember, most uh, clouds over the oceans get uh, produced by stirred up sea salt, basically wave action, uh, putting sea salt up in the lower atmosphere. And those very tiny salt crystals act as uh, nuclei for the clouds to condense around. The more nuclei there are, the whiter the cloud becomes. And so what we could do is simply put out a lot of ships that would basically chuck up a little bit of seawater, entirely natural process, and build more white clouds. Estimates show that the total cost of avoiding all global warming for the 21st century would be in the order of 10 billion dollars. So remember, this is probably somewhere between three and four orders of magnitude cheaper. So typically we talk about 10 to 100 trillion dollars of trying to fix global warming. This could fix it for one thousands or one ten thousands of that cost. So surely we should be looking into it if for no other reason, because a, 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 a billionaire at some point in the in the next couple of decades could just say, hey, I'm just going to do this for the world and, and conceivably actually do it. And then, of course, we'd like to know if there is a really bad thing that would happen from doing that. But this is what could actually avoid any sort of ca catastrophic outcomes not just cutting carbon emissions through uh, more solar panels, which will, in any reasonable estimate, have a negligible effect over the next half century. I want to come to that in a second, but coming back to the stirring up the salt on the oceans, um, uh, first, I want to say there'd be a positive externality. I'd, I'd have better photographs. I, I love a cloudy sky, <laughs> especially white clouds relative to a clear blue sky. Just my taste, though, could be the other way around for somebody. Uh, but I I do think, it, as you point out, I think it's a wonderful opportunity for a foundation or an extremely wealthy individual both to explore that option and to generate some data perhaps on uh, whether it would work. Maybe it's not so feasible. Maybe it would take a rather enormous number of, of ships and it would have, you know, clog the oceans in different ways and have other, as you point out, it may have other effects that we didn't, haven't thought about or don't know about. But uh, well, I want to come to other forms of of reducing carbon in a second. But I, before we do, I want to talk about uh, the side effects of, of climate change. I think a lot of people 
the reason I think there's an apocalyptic feeling among some, and I, I sense it among a number of, of young people these days especially, uh, who are very concerned about this, uh, you know, they see a lot of trends, or at least they perceive trends that, that are alarming. Uh, there is a feeling that, I'll just pick a few, you can then decide which ones uh, you want to respond to, but uh, sea levels rising, sea ice is falling, polar bears are shrinking population-wise, uh, droughts are getting more frequent, flooding is more frequent, hurricanes are more frequent, intense hurricanes are more frequent. Um, do those worry you? Do you think they're true? So, so you actually have to go through one of them, uh, each each one of them, because some of them are are true. So, sea levels are absolutely rising. Uh, this is a very predictable, probably one of the best sort of indicators for global warming. Uh, and we're expecting by the end of the century that sea levels uh, will be somewhere between one and three feet higher than they are today. Uh, but remember, this is not the end of the world. It's a problem, and it's a problem that we know very, very well how to deal with. Many nations have already dealt with it, you know, Holland being uh, one of the obvious uh, countries. This is something that you can deal with very, very cheaply. Uh, also, remember, over the last 150 years, sea levels rose more than a foot. And yet, if you ask most people what happened over the last 150 years, they're unlikely to mention the fact that sea levels rose as one of the uh, century-long important issues. It's absolutely missed because we dealt with it because actually most buildings on the coast or close to the coast certainly get rebuilt uh, every hundred years. So it's something that you can very easily adapt to and something that we have very cheap technology to deal with. Uh, about polar bears, uh, it seems very unlikely that we actually have good data that polar bears are decreasing. Uh, we've certainly seen a dramatic increase in polar bears from the 1960s where we might have had about five to 10,000 uh, individuals uh, in the world. Uh, today, we have somewhere between 22 and 28,000, many, many more polar bears. Uh, and there is no good evidence that they're actually declining. There's no evidence that it's decreasing. But the po important point here is this is mostly because we've been much better at actually stopping shooting polar bears. But remember, right now, Every year, we still shoot somewhere between 300 and 800 polar bears. So, I mean, if you want to do something about polar bears, there's a much easier policy. Stop shooting polar bears. Uh, if you look at some of these other things you mentioned, so, you know, droughts, actually, uh, the UN tells us there's low confidence in, in the scale even of, of droughts. And uh, for the U.S., uh, the U.S. Climate Change Science Program tells us droughts have, for the most part, become shorter less frequent, and cover a smaller portion of the U.S. over the last century. So we're simply wrong on droughts. Again, in the future, there's possibly going to be more droughts some places. Likewise, for floods, uh, we're actually not even sure globally whether there's more or less floods. The U.N. Climate Panel tells us they don't even know, they have no confidence in the sign of the trend. Uh, but certainly, the cost of U.S. flooding has decreased over the last uh, century, dramatically so. Uh, it's probably decreased from, uh, uh, sorry, a typical cost uh, back in, in around uh, 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 um, uh, 1903 uh, was about 2% of GDP. Today, that cost is about 0.2%. So we've seen a dramatic decline in, in these costs. 
likewise for hurricanes. Uh, we've actually seen fewer hurricanes uh, hitting the U.S., not more. And again, it's important because, as you mentioned, a lot of people have the sense that there's more and more hurricanes. What they're actually seeing, and I think this is important to sort of uh, point this out once again, is more the CNN effect that we see more and more of every hurricane that happens. And so we get the impression that things are getting worse and worse. But really what we're seeing is we're seeing more and more of it. Actually, if you look at the continental landfalling hurricanes in the U.S., both the all the hurricanes have been declining, not increasing, and also the uh, strong or the major ones, the ones that are category three and over, have also been declining, not increasing. And again, this simply bears repeating. We get the impression from media that this is happening more and more. But in reality, if you do the numbers, it's happening probably less and less, certainly for hurricanes in, in the U.S. But the reality here is we are getting a very bad picture from media because we're only looking at how often do we hear about it. It's a little bit like back in the 1990s. If, if you remember, everybody talked about how there's more and more crime while all the crime statistics were actually declining. But we saw more and more of these stories about a person being you know, raped or uh, home break-ins and all these terrible things happening. And they're probably all true, but we're not going to be able to make good policy decisions unless we actually look at the data. And the data clearly told us back then we're seeing less crime, not more. And likewise, what we're seeing here is typically that we actually tackle uh, climate uh, catastrophes better and better not worse and worse. Well, the Union of Concerned Scientists claims uh, a quote, recent research in this area suggests there's been an increase in intense hurricane activity over the past 40 years. They concede it's hard to measure. I'm sure they had to do some statistical analysis to figure that out and to try to isolate uh, certain kinds of hurricanes. But there are some, um, there are data points that are not as cheerful, I suspect, as the ones you're summarizing. Do you think that's true? Yes. So you can definitely argue that there has been an increase over the last 40 years. That's partly because you're starting in a very low impact and you're ending up in a higher impact. You're also looking at a data set that we know is terribly uh, uh, skewed because at first, 40 years ago, uh, we had very little satellite information. So you missed most of the major hurricanes, whereas now you get every little hurricane that's delivering. And that's why there's a very good argument that landfalling hurricanes is much harder to miscount. Uh, and that's why that's my preferred message. But the reality here is much more importantly to recognize that it is very unlikely that we're seeing a dramatic increase. We've seen a small decrease in landfalling hurricanes, but it's very unlikely that we're seeing a major increase in any of these impacts. And certainly, if you look at it from the account of how much does this cost society, we have seen a decline in all the major impacts so in U.S. flooding and hurricanes. And certainly, if you look globally on all weather impacts, you've seen a decline in cost from about 0.3% uh, to now down to 0.25 uh, since 1990s of so the last 30 years. And that's worldwide. You have a, this is where You yes. talk about how um, it's a beautiful chart. Climate-related deaths over the last century have have plummeted, and yes. regardless of what's going on in the climate, it could be getting worse. Actually, 
But we could have more hurricanes, we could have more droughts, more floods, and we could still have a lot fewer deaths because we've adapted. We're richer. We have more air conditioning to deal with hot weather. We have stronger buildings because we can afford to make them stronger to deal with flooding, hurricanes, earthquakes, and so on. Yes. And, and, and whenever I show this graph, people are just astounded. It's from the International Disaster Database, which is the best database that we have. It certainly is underrepresenting the impacts in the early years of last century, simply because there is less data gathering. Uh, and yet, what it tells us is in the 1920s, on average, every year, half a million people died from climate-related deaths like floods, droughts, storms, wildfire, and extreme temperatures. Today, despite the fact that the world has quadrupled in population since then, the number is down to about 20,000 people a year. So a 95% reduction every year. And as you quite rightly mentioned, this has very little to do with climate and everything to do about higher living standards. The fact that we pull so many people out of poverty because one of the worst things that can happen to you if you're in a catastrophe is that you're poor because then you can't adapt. You will live in a shanty town, you'll have corrugated roof over your head, and then when a hurricane hits, it's gonna hit you dramatically. That's why when a hurricane hits Florida, yes, it costs a couple billion dollars and it kills a few people, but the same hurricane hitting, say, Guatemala, will cost a third of their GDP and will you know, kill tens of thousands of people and actually demolish their economy for years to come. So the real point here is to recognize that in any realistic world, we have become much, much more resilient towards weather. And of course, that tells us something. It tells us if you want to help future people dealing with climate change, how do you best do that? Do you do that by cutting carbon emissions and hence getting them a worse climate, but a slightly less worse climate in 100 years? You mean a worse economy? You, you, so you mean a worse economy, I think. You said no, a worse no, climate. No, no, no. I actually, I, I actually, sorry. If you cut, you also deliver a worse economy. But if you cut carbon emissions, you will still see carbon emissions go up. You'll still see temperature go up, but not by, sl by slightly less. So you'll have a worse impact on climate, but slightly less worse by the end of the century. So they'll still have to deal with many of these problems. Or do you actually want to pull them out of poverty, which will mean that they will be much better able to tackle anything climate throws at them. Plus, of course, it'll be better for them in all other respects. They'll be less poor. Their kids will die less. They'll have better nutrition. They'll better schooling. All these other things that matter immensely. I'm always surprised, by the way, that people who are focused very much on climate really only think the the, the knob that we can turn is the climate knob. We can cut carbon emissions or not cut carbon emissions. But the reality, of course, is we can do a lot of different stuff. And we have to ask ourselves, where can we, if you will, turn the knobs so that we help the world the most? Not just where do we turn the knob so we cut carbon emissions, because that's the only thing I care about. Well, I think that's a deep and often the, the absolutely right way to think about it. And let me push back on that formulation with this policy that you're talking about. In the United States, we, of course, are one of the larger, being a rich nation with 330 million people, we put out a lot of carbon dioxide into the, into the atmosphere. And we could change that in a variety of ways, the most obviously being uh, attacks on carbon directly. 
We could also subsidize alternatives. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, that would perhaps reduce the rise or the rate of increase or maybe actually decrease uh, carbon emissions. And we can do that. Congress could do it tomorrow. Um, but we are really not good at reducing poverty in the rest of the world. I don't think we know much about that. So, uh, I mean, I have my ideas about how to do that better than 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 I think uh, other techniques, but I could be wrong. And the track record's really bad. We've spent a lot of money trying to fight poverty, at least allegedly trying to fight it with very little impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so uh, it's you're absolutely right. We could cut carbon emissions a lot, uh, but of course, the reality is we haven't. Almost no state has done so very well. Uh, the perhaps obvious uh, exception is the U.S. because you basically discovered shale gas, and that has caused um, gas to be much cheaper than coal. So you switched from coal to gas, uh, especially in the electricity production. That's cut carbon emissions more than any other nation over the last ten years. So, so, but, but obviously that had nothing to do with climate policy whatsoever. But there is actually a lot of ways that we can make people more resilient. Remember, it's not just about pulling people out of poverty, but just to address the poverty point very head on. We know one of the best ways to pull people out of poverty is by allowing them to get into the global marketplace. If we could have more free trade, we could have much richer, much less poor people around the world. We estimate that had we successfully concluded the Doha round, I don't know if you remember, you know, it's pretty much just dead now. But of course, that was the big thing that where the world could actually deliver more free trade. We estimate had we just had a successful Doha round, we could have lifted 170 million people more out of poverty. We could have made every person in the developing world about $1,000 richer per person per year by 2030. That would do an immense amount more good for the world than pretty much any other policy you could imagine. But of course, Nobody talks about that because there's way too many concentrated interests to tell you, oh, don't have free trade, you know, subsidize my particular thing. And there's very little general interest in focusing on free trade because, you know, the benefits are spread so thinly and they're mostly for people who don't have a strong voice in the global community. But apart from all those, but apart from this very obvious policy, we could also be focusing on just simply getting better food uh, to, to, to people around the world. That would help them become richer by themselves simply because they'd be, uh, their kids would develop better. They'd be more alert in school. They would learn more and they'd become more productive as adults. We could do that by, for instance, getting uh, GMOs, GMOs out, but also much more uncontroversially, just simply increase the level of investment and research and development into, into yield increases, uh, which would deliver much more food per acre or hectare that you'd be uh, covering. And there are many, many other policies that we could do like these that are just simply fairly cheap and incredibly effective. So, so yes, I do take your point that we could do uh, CO2 emissions. We haven't done it, really, uh, neither in the U.S. Congress or anywhere else. And we could actually, likewise, be doing some other policies, which, by the way, we haven't done very well either, but that would be much cheaper, much more effective, and would help many more people much better. So I'm sympathetic to the idea that this is uh, not a, a apocalyptic crisis. It's just... Something to be concerned about that we will probably adapt to with relatively uh, low cost. But there are people who argue that, that there is this small risk of a catastrophic event. 
and that we ought to respond to that. And and I think uh, I think it's really powerful to realize what you just said, which is, you know, we haven't done anything, really. <laughs> what has actually, besides uh, create a lot of income for people who write about it and do research in it, which is, <laughs> I'm not against that. I think we've learned something. But that that's one of the impacts. But it's it's striking to me that the decentralized bottom-up solution of shale and fracking uh, has had the largest impact. The political process has totally failed. And it's not just totally failed. I think it's important to point out it's totally failed in a media environment that is constantly beating the drum for what uh, the risks are. Uh, Hollywood is constantly making movies about how creepy it is. Uh, a number of prominent American politicians have have urged the uh, have urged urgent action, and yet it's not just well we haven't responded as well as we could. I think we've kind of done nothing, which um, should give one I think it pause. I, I think the one way to think about that is um, one a worrisome possibility is that we as human beings are just not good at taking action that is going to have consequences, that are, excuse me, taking action to fix things that aren't going to happen for a while. And as you point out, you could argue, well, it's way too late anyway. It's kind of too late. I don't, I don't think that's true. I think, I think there are extraordinary things that could happen, many of them unforeseeable, like, like fracking, which is certainly unforeseen 25 years ago by most people, if not everybody. And, you know, maybe, maybe we ought to be putting some bets on some wild card geoengineering, uh, Subsidies took some crazy, maybe a giant prize for alternatives to fossil fuel energy sources. I mean, I think we should be doing, but even those aren't being done. Even those sort of, oh, well, let's have this in our back pocket just in case. So um, as an observer, I'm tempted to say this is all just you and I are just wasting our time even talking about. <laughs> but but I, I, do, uh, I do find it, there is a possibility that we're just, Oh, we just have our heads in the sand, even though I am sympathetic to your basic point. Hmm. I, I think there's a number of very correct points in, in there. Uh, Nordhaus estimates that right now the world has implemented climate policies that are equivalent to having $2 of tax on a ton of CO2. Uh, and now remember, most most uh, uh, estimates would imagine that we should be up to, say, 30 or $40 uh, per ton of CO2. And those, so, wait a minute, so those, clearly, uh, those taxes are things like gasoline taxes that were put in place – 50 years ago for highway building, not not to fight global warming, right? Or is he talking well, about on top of and, that? And, well, it's, it's murky because, honestly, uh, we have done very little. I think it's the marginal cost. This is what he uh, – uh, he's the only guy who's, I guess, had the, uh, the audacity to try and uh, estimate this for the world. Uh, uh, the OECD did an estimate of, of carbon taxes around OECD and found that there are several thousands of, of uh, CO2 taxes on different fuels in different situations, different uh, policies. There's all kinds of things. So, so the reality is it's very, very hard to estimate. But you're absolutely right. Fundamentally, we've done very, very little. On the other hand, it is also important to say that we're spending a lot of money on climate policies. You know, the EU is proudly saying that they're spending 20% of their budget on climate policies. Uh, the world is spending uh, probably around 150 
billion dollars in subsidies every year just on on solar and wind and a few other things. So I was too uh, pessimistic. We're, we're doing something. Okay, great. So, well, well, yes. So That's the good in news. some sense, we are <laughs> we are spending lots of money, but we're spending it where we know it'll have pretty much the smallest impact. And that's what's really depressing about this conversation, that to a very large extent, climate is much more about you know, people who worry about global warming to get them to feel good about themselves. Oh, see, all these solar panels. Oh, wow, we're really doing something. Whereas, of course, it has negligible impact on the total temperature range. As I pointed out, even if we stopped using fossil fuels, you would only really see the divergence in about half a century uh, in temperature outcomes, simply because it's a very, very, in, uh, in, I, I don't know how to put that, the system is very uh, has a huge amount of inertia in it. So there's a lot of, of sort of trend in temperatures built into the system. And in any realistic outcome, we're simply not going to make a difference before the end of the century. So that's why if you really care about things changing rapidly, the only thing you can do is geoengineering. But more realistically, I think the, the take-home point from the fracking that we were just talking about is to recognize the idea of trying to do global warming by telling everybody, this is terrible, so could you please all do stuff that you don't individually want to do that's going to be really, really costly? And as you could see, for instance, in France, if you just do a little bit of it, it starts you know, losing you your majority. That is always going to be a loser. What you can do and what we should be focusing on is much more getting policies that will actually develop technologies that are market friendly that people will want. So a little bit like fracking, you know, everybody would like to have cheaper gas. Imagine if we could make cheaper solar panels, cheaper wind turbines, cheaper batteries, cheaper fusion or fission, and these many, many other technologies. Imagine if we could make a green technology so cheap, everyone would just buy it. Not because it was green, but simply because it was the cheapest energy. Then, of course, we would solve global warming. That's why the only real way we're going to fix this problem is by coming up with a technology that is so cheap that everyone, not just rich, well-meaning Amer Americans and Europeans, but the Chinese, the Indians, the South, uh, the Latin Americans, you know, the Southeast Asians, the Africans will buy this technology. That's why our research shows the best investment is by far to invest in research and development of green energy. Because there's a huge underinvestment in this area, just like there is in many other areas. This is a market failure. You don't invest in these technologies because it's very hard to reap the long-term benefits or at least reap the full long-term benefits from, from a private patent because that patent will have run out by the time that will actually have a huge global impact. And so there's a huge public benefit, but not a private benefit. That's why we should spend much more money, but still much, much less than what we're spending on climate policies in investing in research and development. It would both make the world a safer place for climate, and it'd be much cheaper and much better, and also, hey, give us better energy technologies. Isn't that where a lot of that $150 billion worldwide is going, though, toward subsidizing no, no. research in, in those green technologies? You would imagine, but no, unfortunately, almost all of it goes to spending it on known inefficient solar and wind right now. We're putting up a lot of it, and we need to subsidize it because it's inefficient. Now, the effect of putting up lots of it is that we give money to these companies that will then invest some of this money in research and development into making better 
next generation solar and wind. That's great. But, you know, say we spend Wrong $150 it. billion. Dollars. If, you, if you spend that, and that means those companies spend $5 billion on research and development, why the hell wouldn't we have spent the whole $150 billion on the right investment, namely the investment in research and development? And also remember, they're only going to be spending on innovation that they know they can monetize in the next five years. We need to spend it in a way that will monetize it for civil, human civilization over the next 50 years. That's probably also a somewhat different uh, tack. What I really like about you, Bjorn, is that you care about the numbers, and uh, a part of me recently has gotten increasingly disturbed that we as economists spend too much time on the numbers because we tend to ignore things that can't be measured. But in the areas that we're talking about, uh, numbers capture a lot of what we care about, not necessarily in the right magnitudes. We're talking about loss of life, and we can talk about cultural loss, which are these are hard to measure. But if you're talking about people just, say, dying, and you have different ways to save people from dying – you want to save more than fewer. That's the only part of the uh, – if all else is held constant, that's the utilitarian uh, piece of me. Mm. And you argue that uh, we have lots of other things that people die from right now that are really uh, – we could do something about. And yet we tend to focus overwhelmingly on climate change as the single most important environmental issue. It, it may not be. Yeah. No, you're you're exactly right, and 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 look, I, I I share with you the idea that cost-benefit analysis is by no means perfect. It uh, it doesn't encapsulate everything, but again, I think of it more as a menu for society. So basically, you know, we put on the prices and sizes. Uh, what are you going to get if you order this item on the menu? How much will it cost? What are the calories? What's the salt content? And you know, we're the kind of guys who then you know uh, take a look over the menu and say, oh, you know what, spinach is really cheap and it's good for you. Uh, you should eat that. And you might not like spinach, and that's fine, but at least it's a good way to give you an indication of what works, what is important. And certainly when your orders of magnitude out, I think the numbers can definitely help you. Just to give you a sense, the, the Nordhaus, as I mentioned earlier, the, the guy who got the Nobel Prize for climate economics, he's actually done a cost-benefit analysis on climate. Again, you can disagree with it. You can say maybe he hasn't included everything. He's certainly tried to include also these far tails and everything. He finds that what we should do is put a higher uh, tax on CO2 than we have today. We should do that globally. If we manage to do this globally, efficiently, that is coordinate uh, a, a, a single carbon tax across all countries from China and the US and the EU and Latin America and Africa and everybody else across the entire century, we can actually cut temperatures by more than one degree Fahrenheit. But remember, that still means we're going to be seeing almost as much temperature rise as we would have seen had we done nothing. And what he also shows is that if we do much more than that, what pretty much all politicians are talking about, not only is it going to be impossible, you know, the 1.5 degrees centigrade that everybody talks about is just not doable. But if we try to just approach that with doable policies, we're going to end up spending much, much more money than the benefits we're going to create for future generations. And I think it's important to emphasize the guy who got the Nobel Prize in climate economics tells us we should do more than what we're doing today. But if we do a lot more, which is what all politicians are arguing for, we'll actually end up making the world worse off. That's a bad deal. And that's something we should take care of. Well, but of course, as you just pointed out, <laughs> sorry, no, I just did, I, I, I'm going to let me respond to that. And then you, uh, yeah, you yeah, can yeah, add. Sure. Uh, Ed, what you were going to say, I I don't think 
everything that's important in that calculation is monetarily uh, measurable. I don't think we get the tails right. I doubt he gets the tails right. And I guess, you know, the most, just take a trivial example. If we lost all the wildlife in the world, and, and let's, let's assume that has no impact on human well-being directly, but we just couldn't enjoy it. And all we did was, was destroy the, the um, uh, kill all the, the wildlife in the world that, let's say, big, big fauna. That would be a tragedy that I would have trouble putting a monetary value on. It's kind of like um, it's kind of like Notre Dame, the cathedral, which which tragically uh, burned down yesterday, uh, not to the ground. Some of it was saved. It can probably be recreated in some fashion, maybe quite accurately. By the way, it'd be a really interesting emotional question whether a replica of the spire will be is will be okay. Uh, will that? And uh, you know, especially if you're if you're a Catholic, if you're a French person, you know, is that going to be an acceptable uh, change? And you know, I don't I don't know the answer to that, but I wouldn't want to just say we'd look at the at the monetary cost of that of that uh, repair to be the effect of the fire. So you know, I, there's some there's some things here that can't be quantified. And my my oh, claim my claim is think even though I like your menu argument and I made it my self for many years in defense of cost benefit when things aren't on the menu it's really hard to remember them and i just i'll just mention that oh sure and, and, and look i i, I think just on your uh, precise uh, argument on losing all all uh, all wildlife you know all other species uh that just seems you know partly i i just can't see any mechanism by which we would actually see that happening but also again if you actually want to conserve wildlife it's surprising that most people are talking about global warming, whereas, of course, the real impacts are the fact that we're using a lot of land for human agriculture. One of the ways that we could avoid that is by making agriculture more efficient so we would use less of it. That's what happened in much of the rich world, and that's what we need to happen in the in the poor world. It's about invasive species. It's about setting aside uh, uh, places uh, to 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 protect some of the things that we really care about. Those are the effective policies, and we know those are effective and much, much more effective. So again, even if you care about some of these things, I, I think you really have to look hard on whether you're getting your value also in terms of species from climate policies. But let me just, because as you as you also alluded to, uh, one of the things that we try to do with Copenhagen Consensus, which is a think tank that gets together a lot of the world's top economists to look across a wide range of areas and say, what are the cost-benefit analyses for all these different things that we could do? So basically, make the menu for, for humanity. Where can you spend a dollar and do the most good? And what we try to find is there are some amazing things that can be done. And there's a lot of pedestrian things, and there's also a lot of really stupid things, but we don't actually uh, work all that hard on, on, on finding them because there's still a lot of amazing things and we want to emphasize them. So just, you know, uh, to pick off a few of those, which you rightly talked about, that are just about saving human lives, expanded immunization, we know that for about a billion dollars, the world could save about a million kids every year. That's $1,000 per kid. We estimate uh, that every dollar spent will do $60 of social benefits. That's an amazing thing. Tuberculosis. Uh, tuberculosis is sort of the, the forgotten disease. Everybody talks about HIV or malaria. Uh, tuberculosis is actually the world's leading infectious disease killer. 
And we've known how to fix it for a hundred years. So the reason why we don't spend all that much money is because it's, you know, oh, boring news. Uh, but the reality is we could save so many people with very little cost that we estimate that every dollar spent would do $43 of social good. Likewise, there's many other things you can do with uh, with uh, uh, better uh, uh, better uh, heart attack medication. We know that that works very well in the rich world. Get that out to much of the poor world, and you could do amazing amounts of good. But and and this is important. We also try to look at a lot of the things that don't specifically involve making people not lose their lives. Because as you point out, there are many other benefits. Obviously, uh, the, the free trade point that I made with the successful Doha round would be an amazing achievement. Basically, we'd have to pay off rich Western farmers, but we'd create immense social benefits for the rest of the world. We estimate every dollar spent would perhaps do $2,000 of social good. But also, we could look at uh, you know uh, universal access to contraception uh, about uh, uh, 215 million women still don't have access to contraception. If we could get that, and it would probably cost about $3.6 billion a year, we could have these women mostly have kids when it fits in their uh, uh, in their time schedule, so they would simply plan their kids better. Typically, that also means you space them better. That means your kids don't die as much. It means moms don't die as much in childbirth, so we actually estimate it would save about uh, uh, 150,000 kids, uh, sorry, uh, women from not dying and about 600,000 kids from not dying. But it would also generate more economic growth because there'd be more capital per kid. They'd be more taken care of. They'd learn more in school, so on. So you get a demographic dividend. Every dollar spent here would probably provide about $120 of social benefits. And just one more thing, we talked about nutrition uh, earlier on. We know from early experiments back in the 60s, if you get kids good nutrition, their brains develop more. So when they go to a school, even if it's a crappy one, they will learn more in that school. And when they become adults, they'll be more productive. They'll actually be surprisingly more productive. They'll avoid a loss of income of about 66%. So we actually estimate for every dollar spent on early childhood nutrition, you get $45 back. Uh, also, half coral reef loss, for instance, as we talked about protecting some of the things that we just care about because they're beautiful, will not only mean that there'll be more beautiful places for you to visit, but it'll also mean that there'll be more fisheries, there'll be more employment, there'll be more uh, sustainable tourism. We estimate every dollar spent on, uh, on protecting coral reefs will produce $24 of social good. So there are lots of this. We actually have a whole list of this, and we have a huge book and all that stuff. You can look at it on our webpage, uh, CopenhagenConsensus.com. But the truth is there are lots of great investments where you can spend a little bit of money and do an amazing amount of good. And that's why I'm so concerned about the fact that we almost only talk about the policies like climate and a few other policies that cost an enormous amount of money and does very little good. Because at the end of the day, I think, you know, when people look back at what we did 50 years from now, they're not going to say, oh, wow, they talk really beautifully about these problems. They're going to say, did they actually fix problems that were relevant for me? And the answer is we can do a lot better than what we're doing right now. So I'm very skeptical about all that. Um, <laughs> Go ahead. I, I I I I salute your your desire to improve people's lives, and I I salute your attempts to try to quantify those gains. Uh, just to take one of them, I, it's not obvious to me that 
let's say, providing free food just to be to be dramatic uh, to people around the world, if we could do that, which we can't, but if we could, if we subsidized American farmers and gave away enormous amounts of food to the poorest people in the world, they'd have more food. Um, but we do some things to their local economies that are given that their economy is not as dynamic, their labor markets aren't as dynamic. That might not be so good for them. Um, and I have similar thoughts about even you know even things that I'm in favor of, like getting rid of tuberculosis and other forms of health improvement. I'm you know I'm all in for, favor of those. I think they're they're wonderful. But in terms of measuring them, you know if you if you start changing people's health and giving people access to contraception not obvious how those things are going to interact. They're not going to probably have the same number of kids as they had before. Quality of life will probably be better that their kids don't have tuberculosis. Not as many would die, but you're going to change the birth. It's going to, it's just, it's very complicated. It's all I want to just say. So I'm all in favor though of, of health um, opportunities, but I do think it's important to think about what we can do to help other people who are poor help themselves and uh, minimize what we do to them and encourage what they can do for themselves. Uh, our attempts to do things for them, our presumptions that they don't know how to do certain things are often wrong. A lot of times the choices they make that look stupid to us turn out to be quite smart. We just don't have all the information. So I just would counsel some um, some humility there. But I oh, actually... Absolutely. But I also... Can, can I just... Sorry, can I just because I I think it's important to have that conversation. Sure, and and, Go ahead. and just uh, on on a few of these things, uh, for instance, it'd be terrible if what we did was uh, you know we subsidized a lot of American farmers, we sold a lot of these of this food in the local market, destroyed the agrarian economy uh, to help uh, more more kids being well nourished. Uh, but fortunately, that's not what we're suggesting. There's a number of ways that you can do this very, very effectively, for instance, by getting micronutrients into uh, so fortified wheat and flour, uh, of, of, you know, if it's rice or whatever it is that is being used in this local uh, economy. So that's basically about subsidizing very, very small bits because for each individual flour mill, it costs a little more to put this fortification in, but it'll actually help immensely. Uh, when when you look at, uh, at, at giving out food, you're absolutely right. If you just try to give out food, that's typically very expensive and doesn't work all that well. One of the ways you can do that is by getting out more information because that's much cheaper. We know that a lot of people underestimate actually also in the U.S. and elsewhere, uh, but it's less of a problem partly because of fortification. But getting the information out that it's incredibly important that your kids eat well the first two years. That's very cheap and will give them a huge opportunity in the future. As you, as you point out, this is not about doing, you know, helping them in, in, in all their ways. It's about allowing them to help themselves better. But one of the ways that we right now see a lot of people around the world, a lot of kids around the world, they're stunted, which is a good indicator. They're basically shorter than they should be for their age. And the reason is that they permanently had a little bit too little and a little bit too poor food to eat. That basically means that for the rest of their life, they are stuck in a lesser ability of doing what they could have done well. So it's really about making sure that they can do the full opportunity. And we know some of these things. We should absolutely be looking at exactly how do we do that. Yeah. But we can do it in a way that helps them a lot with very little impact. So yeah. absolutely, we shouldn't just you know, be barging in there. But there are really smart things that we can do that would have huge impacts at fairly low cost. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna tap into my inner Nassim Taleb and and point out that fortifying things with especially with GMOs may have unintended consequences down the road, but hard to know. Um, I, I do think. So I was not suggesting fortifying it with GMOs, but uh, you know, just we know fortification. We're doing that in many places in the, in the developed world. You're certainly most people are doing it themselves by taking a vitamin pill. Uh, so, for instance, zinc uh, and iron. Uh, about two billion people lack iron, uh, and it simply makes them less vigorous than they would otherwise have been. And just simply providing iron is probably one of the cheapest and most effective things that we could do for the world. Uh, and, you know, one of the ways we could do that is by fortifying flour. We've done it plenty of places. There's absolutely no issue that that would be dangerous. But we do know that it would avoid anemia and hence, uh, you know, make people more productive. It might be true in that case. I, I guess the other issue, which um, I'm uneasy about, is... Uh, you know, the phrase, what we know. Uh, we don't know much about nutrition. Uh, we have a very mixed record of having elite scientists, nutritionists tell us what's good for us. Now, I think there are some basic things we do know. And, and I think you're 100% right that there are tragically children growing up in poverty everywhere in the world who don't get a, a chance to thrive and flourish the way they could if they had a different a different diet. But I'm always a little uneasy with um, yep. the top-down approach R because – Russ, let, let me just tell game. you one story. Skin in the game. Let me, let me just tell, tell you a story that I think is amazing, and everybody ought to know this one. Uh, back in the late 60s, early uh, 70s, uh, some researchers went to Guatemala and found two small rural villages nearby each other, so identical in pretty much all respects. And they gave one village – they gave the kids there good food with protein. The other one only got sugar water. Now, obviously, you couldn't have got this past the uh, the ethical board today. Uh, but the amazing thing is that some of our researchers refound those kids uh, back in the uh, early knots. So, you know, when they were late 30s, early 40s. And, you know, the, this is about 2,500 kids. And you could totally tell the difference on the impact. So again, uh, this is not the kind of thing where we discuss, you know, is, 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 uh, is calories bad for you and, and is fat better than, than uh, you know, sugar or whatever. This is just simply, we know that these kids had much lower chance of being stunted. And on average, these kids had better marriages, uh, better jobs, uh, if they're women, they had fewer miscarriages, fewer kids. Uh, but crucially, if they avoided being stunted, they had about 60% higher wages. So we know that, and that's what the, the stuff that I was telling you, this is the world's longest uh, term study. And of course, you can't do this again today. But we have very good knowledge that it's just a better idea to get more protein than getting sugar water. Uh, and I don't think this is in any way surprising. So we're I not talking about yeah, I don't deny science. that. I don't deny that. I think that's an inevitably true, although I'd like to see the data. I'd like to see the magnitudes. Uh but I think the question is, if you try to implement that on a larger scale, right? no doubt protein when you're young, better than not having protein when you're young. Calories even when you're young, better than not having as long as it's not too many. But how to implement that, how to make that happen is challenging. Sure. That's all. Yeah. Yes. Uh, let's talk about uh, your book, The Skeptical Environmentalist. I want to I go down memory lane for me and um, – tell you a story about when I first found that book. The book came out, I think, in uh, 2001, 2001, right? So I, yep. I get the book. Somebody told me about it. 
and uh, it's it's you, you channeled um, you were the book is in the spirit of of Julian Simon and and others who have con, in a contrarian way said that actually you know the world's getting better in a lot of ways and you did that in a very powerful way it was a beautifully designed visual book and I remember when I read it it was electrifying for me. I, I called a friend of mine, and I said, uh, this is, I, I look back on this with, with um, some embarrassment, but I, I'm, I'm just going to tell you the, 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 the history. I said, we're going to win. And by what we I meant and when I meant, those of us who understand that the world is really not nearly as bleak as it appears, uh, the data is just so overwhelming. And it was such a, a, uh, a, a powerful visual and analytical attack on the doomsday approach. And in those days, uh, I was an incredible optimist, and listeners know I've become less optimistic over time. I also believed that people are rational, that when they saw your evidence, they just go, oh, I was wrong. (laughs) Uh, And I also thought that my side had all the good numbers and the other side's numbers were all bad. So I've I've lost most of those views in the last 18 years, but your book was a tremendous achievement, and it was a a really important um, call to the world to say, you know, it's true that it can feel depressing sometimes, but there are at least some numbers, and maybe most of them, that are pretty cheerful. And I I I, I salute you for that, and you took an enormous amount of flack for doing that. And I just would like to get your impression of what that book achieved and how it changed your life and how the you've dealt with the, the responses to it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you're absolutely right that, that, you know, I, I did this, this book actually mostly for myself because I had, you know, the very standard sort of, uh, Western, uh, somewhat left wing, uh, worried Greenpeace kind of approach. Oh, things are falling apart and things are getting worse and worse. And I was inspired to read the book exactly because I read a, an interview with Julian Simon who said, that's actually not true. Go and check the data. And, and that was Basically, what this book was an outgrowth of, uh, check, checking the data and realizing that on most of the important areas, things are getting better. Uh, as you say, yeah, there was a lot of flack. And, and you know, when I think back on it, uh, I'm sometimes astounded. Uh, I, I, I know that you know, uh, here in Denmark, we had a, uh, a local editor of what you, know, you could reasonably call the New York Times of Denmark, uh, sort of a slightly left-leaning, very reputable newspaper. Uh, he published the first articles with me, uh, uh, and, and you know, he basically said, if, if, it, I, if I'd gotten the same kind of flack, I, I would not have been able to stand up. And I was always surprised about that because he was a really strong guy, and you know he was very sure of his opinions and willing to take a lot of you know flack for for things. Uh, and, and I think what never dawned on me was that when people are are sort of thrown off by people by other people, you know, saying uh, denouncing you and saying, "What? How do dare you write these things?" The the only story that I ever hear is the story that they apparently tell at, at Harvard Business School, sorry, uh, Harvard Law School, uh, where they say, if you have a strong case, pound the case. If you have a bad case, pound the table. Right? <laughs> I, all I heard was people pounding the table. And I was never sort of, uh, that's not an argument. You know, Show me some numbers 
that indicate that this is wrong. And, and, and that's really the approach that I still have. And I think, you know, most academics uh, probably have to most issues. This is not a, a popularity contest. I don't care whether you like me or not. I care whether you have better numbers that show something else. Uh, and, and that's why, you know, when, when I talk about global warming, I, I think you just have to point out, look, it is a problem. It is by no means and in no respect the end of the world. And this is about asking how much can you do if we're going to spend a lot of extra resources? Is this really the place where we can do the most good? Just to give you a sense of proportion, the Paris Agreement, which everybody, at least in principle, have signed up to in the world, uh, and even the U.S. has signed up until uh, 2020, um, will cost probably somewhere between one and two trillion dollars per year. And it will achieve absolutely nothing. You won't be able to measure the impact in 100 years. That is probably a pretty terrible way of spending about 80 trillion or so dollars over the uh, next half century. So I would suggest that we should think about how we spend it differently. Now, if people get all apoplectic about that and say, you can't say that, that's not allowed, and we should be worrying much more about, well, you know, good on them. I simply want to point out they're good data, and some of the best economists tell us there are amazing places where we could spend our money instead, and that's what we should be doing. So, so my reaction from the whole you know, skeptical environmentalist, and I'm very, very pleased, and thank you very much for uh, that you have enjoyed the book. I'm, I'm a little disappointed that you might have given up on a lot of these, uh, these, um, these uh, points, though, because if we look at the general issues that really matter for people, that is, how much, how long do you live? And how much income do you have? And what's the state of your environment? Those are typically some of the three best indicators of what is the welfare of human beings. They are pretty much all increasing. They're all getting better. Now, we could still wish that they were getting even better. And I'm trying to point out that we waste a lot of money on doing bad policies. But overall, despite all this inefficiency, we're still getting better. And, and so you know, my, my goal here in life is not you know, contesting that. It's simply about trying to make us slightly better than what we're doing right now, which is pretty damn good. Yeah. The reason I'm a pessimist, by the way, when I said <laughs> yes, I've become please. more pessimistic, isn't because I think the trends have changed. I think on all those trends, um, they're better. I think human well-being, material, in terms of standard of living, is extraordinarily better than it was 17 years ago, 18 years ago. And that's despite the worst recession of, of our lifetime. Um, it's, you know, enormous numbers of people have been lifted out of poverty in China and India and elsewhere, Africa, in America, despite the claims of others. I believe that the average person is doing a lot better. People still fight and risk their lives to come here to be in America because I think they realize correctly that their lives will be more uh They'll flourish more here. So I think that's all true. I think I think we live longer, quote, except for the opioid crisis for, for uh, I think it's women. Um, but we've, we've lost something there. And in terms of the environment, most of the, you know, the air is, is cleaner and almost, in, in, again, in the developed world and improving in the developing world. But in the developed world, um, you know, there's such improvement in, in places like Los Angeles through both government regulation and private ingenuity in, in terms of efficiency improvements in, like fracking that we're talking about or finding ways to produce 
say, soda cans with less aluminum and incredible things that creative people do. We have more far, we have more uh, forests. Um, you know, the the air is is cleaner. It's uh, our water's cleaner now. It's true the temperature is getting a little bit warmer. It may get warmer still, and that is something to be worried about. But overall, human well being is is fantastically better. And yet, those are on the things that we can measure. And, that, and I, I'm not going to say we shouldn't measure them. I'm not going to say they don't matter. They matter a lot, but they're not the only things that matter. And I'll just to pick on you for a sec. You know, when you said the three things that that contribute to human well being are income, life expectancy, and your your physical environment. For sure, those are all really important, as are the connections we have with others, as are the feeling of mattering, the feeling of dignity, the sense of belonging, a sense of connecting to other folks, love, all those things I don't think we're doing so well on lately. Now, we could argue, well, we don't know how to fix those. That's okay. Or you could argue, you could argue that some of those gains have led to some of those losses uh, and that we ought to be aware of those. And and I think the natural tendency of economists, well, I know the natural tendency of economists. They say, <laughs> well, I don't, the way I, the way I phrase it is, there's no, um, dignity isn't measured in the data set. So I can't, I, I just, I'm just going to have to leave that out. But if you leave it out and it's the most important thing, you left out something really important. So I, I think the challenge for us as, as policy influencers or policy makers or, or people who advise uh, people in government is to keep in mind that what we can measure isn't, isn't the whole story. And the human enterprise is a rich and complex one. And our natural tendency is to not just say, well, I can't measure this, so I'll have to weigh that against it, which is what I say, used to say as an economist, and I hear you saying. Our natural tendency is to say, if I can't measure it, I'm not even going to think about it. I, I know that's wrong intellectually. you know, Rationally, I know that's wrong. But I think that's the human tendency, and I, I'm increasingly hmm. concerned about that. Yeah, so I, I think you both made a very eloquent argument for why things are in general getting better, and I think you're absolutely right that we should be concerned about all the things that we're leaving out. Uh, as, as you also point out, you know, we have some good technologies uh, and techniques to make sure that we at least leave them out less. Uh, so, for instance, we did uh, uh, we did a lot of study uh, in India on uh, uh, on um, uh, uh, toilets, uh, which is a big thing in India, uh, and. And we tried to look at what's the cost and the benefits of doing that. And one of the things we kept hearing was, you know, there's a huge amount of dignity that goes into, you know, being able to uh, go to a toilet instead of sitting outside and and defecating uh, uh, with others, especially for women. There's also some risk of rape and all those kinds of things. But we also have a reasonably good estimate of what people are willing to spend and especially what they're not willing to spend. So you can ask them and get a sense of how much is that dignity worth. But I absolutely agree with you that when all things are said and done, you can have a pretty good first sort of sense of what the menu is. But you have to remember that this is not the only thing. But it certainly also is a big thing compared to what much of the conversation in in the, the policy conversation that we have pretty much everywhere in, in the world seems to be much more directed by, you know, who had the cutest animals or the most crying babies or the best PR uh, agency. And surely that's not the way to do this. So I, I, I would surmise that w while we're still missing out something and we have to work really hard and we'll probably never get all the answers, 
having at least part of that answer and certainly having an order of magnitude is incredibly helpful instead of just being driven by you know this one story or this one uh, meaningful meme uh, that seems to be driving a lot of our conversations. Let's close with your um, assessment of how optimistic or pessimistic you are. Um, you've been doing uh, the Copenhagen Consensus Center for a little bit, not a long time. You're very ambitious, and I salute that again. Um, I salute your attempts to bring about better policy, even if I may worry sometimes it's uh, it may have unintended consequences or be involved with some complexity uh, across uh, different policies when they're combined. But you're trying to you're not looking at the small stuff, and and you should be. Uh, I honor you for that. So the question I have is, do you think you're going to make a difference? <laughs> yeah. So so thank you and and yes we have a little bit of impact. Uh, look, fundamentally a lot of things in the world are actually dealt almost outside of politics, you know, things and how do you regulate your streets and your sewers and your uh you know your uh, uh uh international standards and all kinds of other things happen sort of on the sideline we never see it and it's actually tackled pretty well. You know, our doctors keep on running hospitals and many many other things work. And all of these things are helping us getting to a better place. Now, then there's policy, which is often, of course, about you know who gets what, and and to a large extent, it's simply about if you get it, I didn't get it, that kind of thing. And you know that's fair, and that's what politics is about. And there's no arguing on 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 the serious sum distribution. But then there are some policies that we could do a lot better. I recognize that rational argument is never going to help entirely with these issues. Uh, so, you know, when we look at this, so we've done this for a couple of nations, for instance, we did it for Bangladesh a couple of years ago, where we tried to make a menu just for Bangladesh, looking at where can you spend an extra, their, their uh, currency is Taka, where can you spend an extra Taka and do the very most good for Bangladeshis. And obviously, there are lots of different things. We identified a lot of great ideas, and, and many of them just fell totally flat because they're just not right there where the policy needs them. A lot of policies that are not very effective will still get enacted. But what we did do was we changed a few of those policies a little bit. And so, you know, we have a saying it's in- a tremendous achievement. Yes, exactly. It's not about getting it right. It's about getting it slightly less wrong. And I think I'm actually helping with that. And, and you know, for one little fish in the, in the very, very big sea, I'm pretty- pleased with that. And I think that's the best contribution that you can do if, you, if you're if you not you know, a president and have nuclear weapons kind of thing. <laughs> My guest today has been Bjorn Lomborg. Bjorn, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks a lot, Russ. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.